0: Welcome to the Activist Insights podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insights Monthly. For Beyond the Boardroom, we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Kieran Paul and today we are joined by David Chase Lopes, the Managing Director of DF King in the EMEA region. Welcome to the show David.
1: Thank you so much, Kieran. It's a delight to be here with you.
0: So you've been involved in activist investing in Europe for quite a long time. How has it changed over the years?
1: The first real activist situation I found myself in was in 2007 as an activist working for efficient capital structures against Vodafone. And a lot has changed. But while some things are new, some things haven't changed at all. In 2007, one was as an activist treated like a marauder or a locust, as the Germans like to say, where so I'd say in 2021, there's absolutely a great deal of interest and enthusiasm for activists. So some of the things that are new, I would say, is that if you look at Europe, uh, there's a large number of deals Uh, in 2020 and in Europe, if one reads the Lazard report, over 60 transactions occurred despite the pandemic. Uh, It was a huge uptick from October on, but higher than the previous years. You see different types of actors from the large, large players such as Elliot, but also some very small ones who join the party from time to time or become activists in relation to a specific subject or situation. You have new subjects. ESG is becoming more of a subject beyond just the NGO sphere. It's interesting that it's TCI out of the United Kingdom That was driving a say on climate idea around asking investors to vote on their company's climate policies around ESG issues. Another thing is that at the same time, there are a lot of things that don't change about it, especially around how one reacts or the strategies that one uses. So you still find lots of situations where you have a risk for investors of real creeping control. I've seen this many times in the French market where I've done a great deal of my work. One could even say, if you read the press around Suez and Veolia, that one of the biggest risks that investors are facing at Suez is that Veolia could be engaging in creeping control. State intervention, depending on the country, still is something that is used. And the other thing ultimately is that it's still the same idea about finding a way to improve uh, shareholder returns. It's just a question of, is your series of short-term decisions the best way to get to a long-term outcome?
0: And now you featured in our annual review, which listeners can get a free copy of from our website, in it you said activist campaigns are like shark attacks. So what do you mean by that?
1: What we do in life isn't the funniest thing or the most uh, memorable, so we're trying to figure out a way to describe it. And as I've looked at activism over time, I've thought them to be sort of like sharks, i.e. perfect predators it reminded me of the 1975 Steven Spielberg movie, Jaws. And during that movie, when the police officer Brody is on the boat with Quint and he sees the tail come out of the water and he's in the orca boat, he said, I think you're going to need a bigger boat. So if you think about a shark, an activist is a perfect killing machine in the sense that it's fully focused on its goals and it's constantly working on it and it's extremely prepared. In an activist situation, no one is quicker, no one is stronger, no one is faster than a very talented activist. So there are lots of different types of sharks, there are lots of types of activists. But when you think of the way a shark attacks, you can sort of get a sense of how an activist attacks. It's essentially by surprise, it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's quick, it's sudden. The impact can be deadly if it's not managed. And then to a certain degree, just like when you're in the ocean, You don't really want to have an attack occur. You want to make sure it never happens and that the shark just swims by. How do you do that? You know, you want to avoid that shark attack. You want to be able to avoid attracting the attention of finance's greatest and strongest and most proficient predator. And it's the board's responsibility to put in motion a certain series of safeguards and management of the executive to greatly reduce The probability that there could be an attack. And if there were some sort of an attack, that there'd be a real ability to defend oneself against it.
0: So, apart from not going in the water, what is the single best defense tactic a company can employ?
1: Identify the meta challenges that your company is facing and address them holistically in a way that drives shareholder value. We often talk to companies about the importance of sort of doing an inventory of what's not working. The three or four things that immediately come to mind around strategy, around board composition, around capital allocation, for example, around other outstanding issues. If one were to put in place a strategy over six to 18 months to sort those out in a way that anyone who was aware that there were issues could see that you didn't need anyone besides yourselves to sort it out, is kind of the safest way. You want to avoid a situation where A situation internally has gotten so poor that a given investor with an important holding thinks that they have to take things into their own hands. And what would be worse is the other minority investors begin to support them.
0: You said in the past that essentially a small activist is like a toddler with finger paint. So, how do companies take the paint away before they make a mess?
1: Smaller activists have to be taken on aggressively. And a real sense of their ability to attract attention or not. What I mean by the toddler with fingerprint, they're a nuisance, they get in the way, they create low-level problems that take a lot of hand holding, but it's far different than if a activist investor with tens of billions under management comes to you with a white paper and says, we really think that the asset allocation should be this, and this is our plan. And they're announcing as they're speaking to you that they're in a meeting and the white paper has been announced to the public before they've shown it to you. In that white paper is a three-point plan that everybody can absorb that should drive shareholder value. That's the real difference. What a new or a junior activist does is often they're looking to use this occasion to build their brand. They may have put a lot of time into their great idea, but their great idea doesn't necessarily attract the attention over a long period of time of everyone else. So when their neat idea around the great strategy that will save the company or these three board members, et cetera, is brought to the board, while it should be taken very seriously and analyzed, if it's not clearly compelling and easy to understand and actually does drive value for everybody else, most other investors won't look that far away because it is a tremendous gift to an activist investor for minority investors to support them. And they're not going to do it unless it's interesting in the long term. And when they weigh the pros and cons of supporting an activist versus the incumbent company or the board, it's a tremendously hard decision. So one of the things that some companies forget when they're attacked by, let's say, the toddlers, is an aggressive stance that demonstrates mastery of your shareholder base, of the ideas, of the agenda, that does not give them a lot of oxygen to live and thrive, is probably a better approach. It's a fight you can win. It's a fight that you can win that will leave them on the mat. And we think that it's important that companies stand up and defend their convictions And, you know, there are a lot of ways that these junior players make mistakes that allow a board that even has challenges to win. Many of them don't understand custodial chain. They don't understand the real detailed rules about how to vote at an AGM or an EGM, the deadlines if you want to put in a resolution, things like that. They might have a great idea, but they don't know the timing of when they have to launch this sufficiently in advance to get enough support so that it's meaningful at an AGM or an EGM. They get angry. They criticize unnecessarily the individuals on the board, which is a complete turnoff to all the other minority investors. They become erratic. They think that the world is focused on their incredible ideas, in quotes, when they're really only interested if that idea is going to solve a problem or generate shareholder return. One of the key things to think about is that the other minority investors and the board understand why what you're trying to do is important to them, the sort of so what factor their attention span might not be as long as you think. And if you are going to present something to minority shareholders to give them enough time to get to know you and get to know what you want and maybe make sure you're giving them really color about what would occur if they agree with what you wanted accomplished through a a resolution. If you're a company a board, I just reiterate the importance of knowing what you need to work on, understanding your shareholder base, Staying close, using the easy tools to do that, whether it be perception studies, share register analysis, corporate governance roadshows, straightforward roadshows, and defend your convictions and fight where you want to fight. And don't be over generous of your time and energy to a smaller activist. And if possible, defend yourself in a way that the ability of minority investors to ultimately take their own decision remains in their hands.
0: We'll hear more from David after this quick message from Insightia. Did you know you can sign up for a free trial now of Activist Insight Governance on our website? Activist Insight Governance provides you with the most up-to-date information about companies' corporate governance, takeover defences and boards. Our database allows you to search for companies with poison pills or long-tenured directors and track any changes to charters bylaws and governance guidelines documents. Request a 30-minute demo now of all of our products, which also include Activist Insight Online, Activist Insight Shorts and Activist Insight Vulnerability by visiting our website. And 2020 turned into a pretty busy year in France in particular. So what do you think some of the year's key campaigns means for activism there?
1: Yeah, well, it was fascinating, and there was about seven biggest deals, and and I happened to have an opportunity to work on five of them. Essentially, activism overall is working better. There is an audience that will listen to an activist, and if the activist's story is sound, is demonstrating having meaning to the interests of all other shareholders, and can say or articulate what the outcome that they wish to accomplish is there's a real chance that they can not only have impact, but actually accomplish their goals. We've seen this over the last week in in one individual situation with with a large French CAC 40 and its governance. We're noticing that, you know, not only are investors listening to activists, but so are boards. You know, they're trying to get on the front foot. And if the activist has highlighted to the rest of the shareholders a glaring problem, there is room for a board to move proactively to sort it out to avoid... An unnecessary battle and create shareholder value. The other thing that is really surprising is that the position of the French state isn't as crystal clear as it was, but I think that they will probably look to a new opportunity to sort of demonstrate its profound influence. I don't think in the end, sensitive deals get done without state involvement. If if it isn't just on a base that the BPI is invested, the de Depot is invested, or it's going to touch let's say stakeholder interests either communities or employment so that impacts the state as a state as country and a central control those are important i think as we get closer to 2022 in may of 2022 when there's going to be the presidential election these issues will not go away and i think the state will definitely need to demonstrate that it is an actor that has influence not just with shareholders but with stakeholders in that country And then I think also the overall theme in activism is shareholders want to be the deciders of the destiny of the companies in which they're invested. It's always the same thing. You know, artificial hindrance to making an adult decision about where this company needs to go usually is met with a great deal of resistance and frustration from minority investors. It's a fascinating time in France for activism. I think as well that there's a tremendous amount of talented actors in France on the subject.
0: You've also in the past talked about the potential for a lot of debt holder activism this year. How do you expect that to shape capital markets? And is it already happening now?
1: I'm not necessarily sure that the debt holders are going to be the activists. But what I meant by that was debt and cash on hand are real challenges in this pandemic world and the post-pandemic world. In a world where cash really is king, And a debt load can become a problem. You do not want to be in a situation where you have to go to shareholders to solve a debt problem. So I worked on a number of cases this past year across Europe where the driver was too high a level of leverage. And the solution was to go to shareholders and do a capital increase that automatically left them, unless they took up their rights, highly diluted. And when one explores debt, which is not the sexy part of finance. uh, And I was a debt analyst and a debt banker for about 10 years. So I kind of know a lot about it. I realized when we were talking about debt subjects to shareholders, they're only focused on this is going to hurt and I'm going to be diluted and I hate dilution. And I don't want this. Find another way to solve it before you become insolvent. So what that means is you really need to sort out debt and cash. And what was interesting was I was with a client in late 2019. So before the pandemic, and he said to me, one of the big challenges is going to be the debt load and the leverage levels of a lot of these companies. And what the pandemic has shown in a lot of parts of the economy that have just essentially shut down, there's a huge need to retain cash and to be able to cover your debt and also to be able to function. So that leads to a lot of companies having to come back and refinance through capital increases. Well, provided that you as a holder continue to take up your rights, you're not diluted. But if someone says, this is a bad idea, or this isn't necessary, they're at some point gonna throw it on its head. Like that happened with Univirodamco Westfield, Ultimately, Europe car mobility got severely damaged because of its debt load and had to really be fully restructured. And everybody who was there previously was massively diluted. And there were activists involved in both. You know, that's a really important thing to keep in mind because if someone can say to a company, such as Mr. Bressler said at the Unibio Redempo Westfield situation, instead of coping with the 27 billion euro debt load you have today through a dilution that's going to hurt us today. If I could promise you no dilution today, a solution later about our issues in the United States and a promise that in three years we'll become the European champion of malls, that's whether right or wrong is far more digestible to most investors than to say, we're going to bite the bullet today, take a dilution. So this company's balance sheet is solid going forward. And once this storm is over, we can move ahead together and rebuild. There just isn't the willpower in the shareholder market to be the one you want to ask that question to. So that's really what I meant by that here.
0: And finally, obviously, ESG is a big topic right now. How important do you think it will be this year in France?
1: ESG in France, across Europe and the United Kingdom, is going to be a massively important subject. It's sort of clearly gone into hyperspace in terms of importance over the last four months. It's connected to the pandemic in the sense that a lot of companies have had to deal with not only running their company during the pandemic, but addressing societal issues and environmental issues, which in those conversations and analysis by investors, they have pushed their ESG agenda far further, trying to actively encourage quantifiable KPIs for remuneration around ESG topics, and in particular, carbon emissions. And we've seen with a specific types of activists, whether they be NGOs, but as well, leading activist investors who have either put into place an environmentally focused activist fund, such as TCI, the Children's Investment Fund, uh, Chris Holmes' structure is challenging companies, not only in the United Kingdom, but across Europe to consider putting in a say on climate resolution that wouldn't be binding, but would start to put teeth, if you will, into different companies' ESG policies. So we're seeing the subject growing. I think one of the reasons it's growing is that the data sets and the intelligence around statistically ESG subjects is growing. EU listed companies are going to be facing EU taxonomy in 2022 and 2023. So as the environment and societal and government issues really become embedded subjects in how one evaluates the quality of an investment, These subjects are going to be taken up by most actors, and clearly, activist investors will find a way to influence how these subjects develop. And again, it's another subject that, if a company is addressing actively, is making it easy and straightforward for people to understand why the KPIs on the ESG subjects are meaningful to that company, how they're measured, how those measures are material, and how they tie back to various non financial quantifiable KPIs. It's easier for these companies to demonstrate alignment. And also, I just uh, highlight that ESG really has an E, has an S, and has a G. Most companies, because the G equals the board primarily, have got a good sense of that. Environmental issues through reporting and subject matter is already well advanced. The S is an area where they'll probably be the most need For new and heightened focus, societal issues primarily are focusing on diversity, depending on the country, but also there are other more topical matters. But clearly, any understanding and any clear communication and tying ESG back into the bigger strategic picture and how the board manages these subjects with mastery and openness to take on board uh, not only shareholder interests, but stakeholder interests will be key. I think clearly what this all shows is that we are really leaving the pure shareholder model to go to a stakeholder model. And as is often the case, I think active investors or activists will be among the most innovative participants in the debate around these subjects.
0: That's it for today's episode. You can subscribe to our magazine, Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at And if you enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Boardroom, check out our back catalogue where you'll find a plethora of discussions with industry experts. There is also a handy Best Of 2020 episode in there for your convenience. Remember, our free definitive annual review is out now for you to download. Just visit the reports page on our website. And if you want something discussed on a future episode, simply email press at And join the conversation online by using the hashtag activistinsightpodcast on Twitter. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're using, because that really does help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.